Living Corporate is brought to you by The Access Point. The reality is, this is the largest influx of black and brown talent corporate America has ever had. And as a result, a variety of talent entering the workforce are first-generation professionals. The other reality? Most of these folks aren't learning what it means to navigate a majority white workplace in their college classes. Enter The Access Point a live weekly web show within the Living Corporate Network that gives black and brown college students the real talk they need and likely haven't heard elsewhere. Every week, our hosts and special guests are dropping gems, so don't miss out. Check out The Access Point, airing every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Central Standard on livingcorporate.tv. Hey everybody, this is See It To Be It from Living Corporate. Living Corporate is a digital media network that centers and amplifies black and brown people at work. My name is Amy C. Wanninger and I'm the host of See It To Be It. When I was growing up in rural Southern Indiana, I didn't know people who went to college or who worked in professional roles. I didn't know what those jobs looked like, much less how to break into them. But this show isn't about me, it's about my guests. I bring you career stories from everyday role models in jobs you may not know exist. More importantly, the folks I interview share their perspectives as black and brown professionals in jobs and environments where they may be the only. My guest today is Dr. Nika White, who owns her own management consultancy firm. But before we get to the interview, we're going to tap in with Tristan for some career advice. What's going on, Living Corporate? It's Tristan, back again to bring you another career tip. This week, I want to talk about some of the common outreach mistakes you might be making. Have you ever reached out to a recruiter, someone on LinkedIn, or just someone you want to connect with and they never responded? Believe me, I've been there. There's a couple of common mistakes that many of us make when we reach out that may be blocking us from our blessings. First, sending a generic message. I can almost guarantee that you don't like to receive generic messages, so why would you send one? Make sure that each message you send out is tailored to the person that you're reaching out to. This goes for both email and LinkedIn. The next mistake is asking for something in your initial email besides time. Outside of requesting 15 to 30 minutes of their time, you shouldn't be asking for a referral or to be considered for open roles. Instead, Figure out where you can provide value and give your contacts some time to get to know you, what challenges you're facing, and how they can assist. The final mistake is thinking that the purpose behind every connection is that the person will get you a job. If this is what you think, you're setting yourself up for failure. Your contact is going to think you're only trying to use them and no one likes to feel used. Make sure you display genuine interest in the person, what they do, and the industry you're trying to go into. Remember, each interaction is a chance for you to gain information and insight that can help you tailor your resume, help you with answers in your interview, and even prepare you for conversations with other professionals within your industry. Landing the referral is just a bonus of developing genuine relationships. With unemployment levels being so high, that means the market is quite competitive. So networking is an even more vital part of your job search. Watch out for these mistakes and make some adjustments in your outreach to increase your chances of a response. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. 
Living Corporate is brought to you by the Leadership Range, a podcast within the Living Corporate Network, hosted by globally certified and Fortune 500 executive coach and leadership development expert Neil Edwards. The Leadership Range is focused on having real, raw, soulful and accountable conversations about inclusive leadership, allyship, professional development. Every week is a new episode with new learning and new actions to take on to grow inclusively. Make sure you check out the Leadership Range everywhere you listen to podcasts. Welcome back to See It To Be It. My guest today is Dr. Nika White. Dr. White is a national authority and fearless advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion. As an award-winning management and leadership consultant, keynote speaker, published author, and executive practitioner for DEI efforts across business, government, nonprofit, and education, Dr. White helps organizations break barriers and integrate diversity into their business frameworks. Her work has led to designation by Forbes as a top 10 DNI trailblazer, and it is an absolute honor to have her on the show and to call her a friend. Welcome, Dr. White. Thank you so much, Amy. I am thrilled to be here as your guest, and I'm so honored that you thought of me. So thank you. Oh, I think of you all the time, not just in relationship to this show, but I love following you on social media. I, I learn a lot from you and I love the energy that you exude, especially um, in a space that can be very, very difficult and very exhausting as someone who also works in this space. So, <laughs> Exhausting is a, is a good word for this work. While it's rewarding, it really is hard work. And I don't think that people necessarily um, realize that. So I, I appreciate you bringing that to the fore. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. So tell us a little bit about the work you do and how um, your consulting firm is kind of unique in this space. Sure. So um, my management consulting firm, we intersect the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion with leadership and business. We work with all types of clients, different industries, different sizes, private public sector, and primarily we help them to integrate into their business framework, strategic diversity, intentional inclusion, and a lens of equity. And what that looks like from client to client can vary based upon where those organizations are within the continuum of diversity, equity, and inclusion. But I like to say that our primary focus is in two key areas, one of which is DEI strategy work, and the other would be instructional design, content creation, and so facilitation of um, learning and development experiences that fall under the broad umbrella of um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. So as part of the second half of the question, what makes my firm unique is, you know, I, I have grown to understand that there are a lot of DEI practitioners that have structured their business in a similar fashion. So I don't know how unique necessarily these points are that I'll share, but it's certainly something that um, I take a lot of pride in. We are um, a boutique consultancy. Um, so for us, we truly understand that there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. The work of diversity, equity, and inclusion is really personal for us. We have deep convictions about it. And so that extends to how in which we like to collaborate and partner with our clients as extensions of their um, internal team. For us, it's all about impact. And we are quite communicative about there being a keen difference between activity versus impact. 
Um, so even how in which we execute and provide solutions to address clients' you know, challenges and opportunities from a DEI perspective, we really like to get to the crux of the matter, peel back all the layers, identify those root causes of issues that could be compromising inclusion and solving for it in that way. And that can look different from client to client, but it's mostly about looking at policies, you know, culture, systems, um, and allowing that information to help inform a path forward plan that can lead to greater sustainability. Now, you didn't start out your career in DNI, and mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could share the story <laughs> about how you got into this work, where you started, and kind of how you made this transition. Sure, I'm happy to share that story, Amy. So you're right. Um, I often jokingly say that the work of DEI somewhat found me, um, but my background is marketing communications, and I had a long tenure working in that space, and I really enjoyed it. I thought that I was going to be in that space for the long haul. Everything about it was um, what I felt like was in my element. You know, the on time, on budget, on strategy. Um, it was what my undergraduate degree was in. And so after spending some time working within an ad agency environment um, as a marketing communications professional, I really started to ponder why there aren't others who look like me as a black female that were taking advantage of what I saw as a very fulfilling career path. And when I began to consider that and the work of marketing professionals, which is to be smart marketing partners to um, our clients, consumer constituencies, who represent diverse America, it just begged the question, why aren't communication firms, advertising agencies being much more intentional to create greater level of of deepened commitment to realizing the strength of diversity, equity, and inclusion? And the agency that I worked for at the time, it was headquartered in Greenville, South Carolina, um, but it also had a presence in an office in New York. So I was in between both offices and it always was amazing to me to even um, go to the New York office and see that the advertising capital of the world, right? New York was even challenged with diversifying this industry. And um, so I saw that as a business case. I knew that at the time, the big, hairy, audacious goal, the BHAG for the agency I worked for was to become the most admired agency. And so I thought, if that's our goal, why are we waiting for someone to place mandates that would require us to have to go through certain changes because the industry depended upon it. Why not be proactive and intentional and leverage that um, as a way to help catapult us to the next level and to be able to compete effectively with some of the other agencies that were uh, much more further ahead in their approach to diversity, equity, and inclusion. So Amy, I literally sat down with the president CEO who was very hands-on at the time. He was quite accessible and I had a good rapport with him. And I, I shared this you know, epiphany that I'm sharing with you. And he listened intently, asked very thought-provoking questions. And at the end of that conversation, he said, Nika, I agree, we're going to do it and you're going to lead it. Now tell us how. And I was prepared for everything in that conversation with the exception of tell us how. Um, But I did have the wherewithal to immerse myself into this space and to certainly align with other um, practitioners that were accomplished in helping to realize successful results for the respective organizations that they worked for. And so um, that's, that's really where it started. And so fast forward, I was doing this work for the agency and then several years later, the opportunity presented itself for me to move directly full-time into this role at a, um, a VP level 
on a, a larger scale. Um, and the rest is history. I then started noticing that there was such a demand and need for diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I started um, really executing my exit strategy to uh, be able to do this for myself from an entrepreneurship perspective. And the rest is history. <laughs> I love your story because it starts with you seeing a problem and speaking up and just having the courage to say, this needs to be fixed. Yes, that is precisely how it happened. And, and I tell that story often when I, especially when I'm working with organizations that are not far enough into their journey, but there are some champions internally that really want to be able to see this work come to fruition and be operationalized. And so I share my story to say, all it took was for someone to see the opportunity of the strength of DEI, to see the business case, to raise their hand, and then be willing to choose courage over comfort to say, hey, we are in this space and we should be. So now what are we gonna do about it? I was fortunate that I was met with um, great positivity you know, from the organization that I, I worked for. And, um, and we were able to slowly but surely begin charting out this pathway of success. And so that's where it starts oftentimes. It's just someone raising their hand. And so hopefully this is encouraging someone that's listening to this. Yes, absolutely. Raise your hand. And I love that um, courage over comfort yeah. is, yes. you know, if, if we could all live our lives in ways that were courageous over comfortable. Yeah. Think of what we could accomplish. I, I think that's such a beautiful sentiment. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's so important to this work as well. Um, as you know, Amy, because it's, it's complex. It's not always easy. And, you know, as DEI practitioners, we're often finding ourselves holding space of solidarity for people to engage and people have different mental models around this work. Not everyone is starting at the same place. And so that takes a level of courage um, and then, you know, just the, the whole entire work of, of being a voice for the voiceless or those that are, are vulnerable, um, that takes courage because there's risk involved in that. That's the very reason why sometimes when we talk about allyship, you know, we often hear people refer to it as being an accomplice, right? There's a risk involved in that. Yeah, absolutely. Because if, if someone's in danger and you put yourself between them and the danger, yeah. now you're in danger. Absolutely. And, you know, I'm so glad that you use that word um, very specifically in the context of DEI, because I don't think that sometimes people will um, correlate danger to the lack of belonging and lack of psychological safety, but it impacts health. It impacts, you know, people's mental state. Um, you know, it's, there's so much that can compromise a person's ability to show up at their best um, that it is dangerous. It's dangerous even for organizations to not think intently about the value of DEI if they want to remain relevant and to, um, again, have that competitive advantage and be able to attract and, you know, retain the best talent. I mean, there's so many reasons that, you know, there are business risk associated or even just, you know, risk to the moral imperative of organizations that want to be found caring deeply about humanity and community. Um, so I, I appreciate the use of that word. Well, I think the opposite of safety is danger. Yes. And we true. talk about needing psychological safety, financial security, you know, job security, physical safety. I mean, these are real issues happening all around us every day in the workplace, you know, for, for black and brown people, for LGBTQ people, for women, 
for people with disabilities, there's a lack of safety. And to me, that just, it says, well, we're in danger and we need to do something about that. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think language is so important. And so I pay attention to the words that are being used in the context of DEI. I think that um, we have to be thoughtful about how in which we talk about the implications uh, because words matter. And I think that it has the ability, if we are thoughtful with our words, to help provide the clarity that's needed and to help people to be called to action in a way that's, that's a bit more urgent than perhaps just you know being nonchalant about you know, the state of our society right now. And I think that's what we need. We need people that are willing to act with urgency. And, and that requires clarity. I often say that resistance is a matter of lack of clarity. So if we can help bridge that gap through our thoughtfulness of our words and how we talk about it and frame it, that's important. You know, you were just asking about my background and how I gravitated to this space of DEI. Um, I, I so appreciate my um, marketing communications background because I often share that I leverage that skill set to the work of DEI every single day because it's not just about helping people through these learning and development experiences or through strategy conversations to understand the constructs of diversity, equity, and inclusion in theory and practice, but it's also about how are we positioning this, right? You know, how are we developing the DEI brand assets, like the mission and the vision to help people to have this common language upon which we can coalesce around, which helps with the clarity piece. And so I think that the marketing communication side of things is critically important to the overall effectiveness of being able to get the buy-in that's needed to sustain effective um, impact. Yeah. And I think marketing is really applied empathy. Oh, it is. Yeah. Because you're, you're trying to get into the mind and the heart of the person that you want to influence. You're trying to figure out what's important to them and why, Mm -hmm. and then position what you're offering in a way that speaks to what's on their mind and in their heart. Yes, you're appealing to people's emotions. And as I mentioned before, this work of diversity, equity, and inclusion, it is really personal for a lot of people. It's because it's their lived experiences and it doesn't get more personal than that, you know? And so I I really appreciate you bringing that to the fore. And I'm finding, Amy, that many brands are becoming much more thoughtful about how they need to align their um, corporate communication strategy, their branding campaigns, um, to help their brand to be perceived as one that um, really understands the value of, of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and I think that's important as well. There's a lot of brands out there that are being criticized for coming across as very performative. And so I think that it, it requires organizations to make sure that they are aligning the professionals that are charged with this responsibility um, to, to ensure that they also are operating with the lens of equity and inclusion, because it, it shows forth in, in the messaging and, and, you know, how much you're casting people for your different, you know, campaigns and promotions. But, you know, I see, I see a lot of value into incorporating a lens of um, DEI into the marketing communications piece. Yeah, we're seeing a lot more, you know, specific to the marketing communications piece. I want to see companies do more of the work before they claim more of, do the work before you claim the woke, right? Yes. is what I would love to see them do. (laughs) But I have noticed as I've been watching TV more lately um, that we're seeing a lot better representation 
um, of diverse families, of diverse, um, you know, diverse consumers, right? Dad's doing laundry and, you know, the the interracial gay dads, you know, with the kids washing the dishes or whatever the thing is. And it's like, you know, and I do love to see that because I think the, that for people to see themselves represented, you know, even if it's only for 15 seconds in the middle of, you know, 60 minutes or whatever, um, you know, I think makes a huge difference. And I think it shows that these, these companies are aware that there's a changing marketplace. Um, I'm hopeful that they will get their insides right with their outside messaging as well and make sure that their leadership and their employee opportunities and, you know, promotional strategies and pay equity is all aligned to what they're putting out into the world. But, you know, time will tell. Yeah, time will definitely tell, but you're, you're so right. Aligning words with action is a necessity for brands because, again, I think that the, the regular consumer is, they're able to sniff that out, right? They can tell if it's performative or if it's just words that are ringing hollow. And so, um, you know, brands are, are having to learn the hard way. And so um, I, I think it's critically important. My friend, um, Katie Martell, she refers to it as it being um, woke washed, you know, and, um, and so I, I so appreciate her message and she's doing a lot of educating um, to, you know, chief marketing officer type professionals just to help bring that, that point um, to the fore because it, it's important and it is impacting how in which people are perceiving those brands and those organizations. Definitely. Now I want to switch gears just a little bit. I want to go back to uh, your transition from an employee doing DEI work to being an entrepreneur doing DEI work. And I, I bring this up for a couple of reasons. Number one, um, there's so much pressure on people now, right? If you're on, and I know you're on Twitter, right? LLC Twitter is like, you got to have a hustle and you got to have a business. And I don't care how hard you're working. If you work 80 hours at your day job at 120 to that and start a business. Um, so that's one aspect of this. And number two is in the last probably six to nine months, we've seen a lot of people hang their shingle as DEI consultants uh, because there's been such a demand for this. Can you just kind of explain (laughs) um, to our listeners what's different about being a DEI practitioner inside a workplace versus running a DEI consultancy? Such a, a great question, Amy. I think I'm going to start with um, a response to, you know, just by reacting to the fact that um, you're right, there's such an influx of, of new talent that's appearing within this space. And, and I have a couple a couple thoughts about it. The first is, while I'm excited that there is now this increase of, of credibility and interest and popularity into the discipline of diversity, equity, and inclusion, I have to be honest in sharing that I'm also a little, a little concerned and protective. And I say that because overnight, it seems like hundreds, if not thousands of um, DEI experts have appeared, right? And, and I am a firm believer that this work is not for the faint of heart. There is certainly strategy and skill sets and experience and know-how that allows you know, someone to be able to operate effectively. And, and this space, and I, I don't want that to, to be missed, right? Um, and so I, I think that as practitioners, we have to do a really good job of, of helping to, to see that point and support each other um, as, as so many of us are finding this as, um, as, a, as a fulfilling career path, right? 
Okay. So to your question, I just had to get that out there because it's been something that's been weighing heavy on me. Yes. But to answer your question regarding um, how is it different working internally as a lead for DEI within an organization versus doing this work from a consultancy perspective. And and I will tell you that now I'm on this side, I I will, I will never go back in (laughs) me. I say that for a couple of reasons. Um, One of the motivators for me to step outside of you know, doing this work internally for an organization to doing it as a consultant um, running my own business was because I, again, I have deep convictions about this work and I, I wanna be true to the work. I don't want to dilute the work. And so sometimes it can be hard if you are a W-2 employee to manage up and to say what you need to say and have it to be received and to operate at a pace that you can feel good about, right? I am perfectly okay with organizations being on a journey, right? And that's what this is. It's not a destination, it is a journey. People are at different points within you know, the broad spectrum of the continuum of DEI. Um, but one of my biggest frustrations is when organizations will enter into this space without truly counting the cost and understanding we know, what type of readiness is, is required, you know? And so for me, I, I feel very empowered um, when I'm on this side as a consultant, um, when I need to go in and, and express what needs to be expressed, you know, holding people accountable, not giving people passes, but really saying, having the hard conversations, if you will. And then walking out of there knowing that I can sleep at night because I did not dilute the work because the work is so important to me. And I'm not saying that everyone has to execute it the same way, but I think that philosophically, there are some foundational principles that you have to really truly believe in if you want to be found credible um, in your rigor and your due diligence for executing and implementing this work throughout organizations. And so that's not always an easy place, you know, to be when you are internally as a W-2 employee, because again, there's all these risks involved and you perceive people are going to see me a certain light or they're not going to buy into it. Or I need to kind of appease, you know, certain leaders in the organization by not being too heavy handed with, you know, this message or that message. And I didn't like that. I didn't like the politics of all that. I didn't like the complexity of all that. And I'm not saying that even as a consultant, there's not a level of thoughtfulness that goes into how in which you are um, sharing the message and you're coaching and guiding and consulting, but there's less risk involved when I'm on this side, you know, because I'm not just relying upon one particular client, if you will. And the same way that clients will vet NWC, my firm, we're also vetting them to see if there's a good match there. We ask our questions as well. And we don't proclaim at all to be a one-size-fits-all approach or for every organization. There are certain things that we look for that allows us to be an effective partner. And so that, that's the main difference that I have seen being on, on the outside versus working directly internally. Yeah. And for all of that, right, how easy not easy, but how much freedom there is in having that clout as a consultant, right? Because you can go in and I, I don't think that's just true in DEI, right? I think that's true in a lot of fields. It's true. You're right. If you go in as a consultant, they're paying you three times as much. So they listen to you mm-hmm. as opposed mm-hmm. to as soon as they hire you and you're sitting in their office and their chair and using their, you know, their hardware, right? Now it's like, 
oh, that's cute, but no, we're not doing it that way. <laughs> right? right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but even for all of that, being an entrepreneur is hard work. Oh my god. Because goodness. it's not just about being good at the work, right? I mean, yes. you've got you've got a whole back office to run on top of. <laughs> yes, I tell work. my team, I tell my team often, um, and, and not to put the burden on them at all, because I chose this life. I chose the route of entrepreneurship. And so I own that. But we have conversations frequently about the weight of entrepreneurship. And the reason why is because I wanted my team to fully understand that in order for me to be at my best as a leader of the organization, to take us to the next level, I can't always be in the trenches of the day-to-day. I have to also be able to have space to create and to think and to grow the business to the next level. And that's different. And so even as, as I was sharing with you before, Amy, we are overnight going to be doubling the size of our team. And in preparation for that, part of what I've been articulating to my my existing team is that this is a way for me to help build my leadership bench so that I can serve in a true fashion of a CEO. You know, I don't take it lightly that my colleagues, my teammates who make me smart every single day, that they rely on me to help support their families. And I don't want to let them down. And so while I chose this life of, you know, carrying the burden of entrepreneurship, the weight is heavy and I just want them to have that perspective. So while each of them, as they are assigned to different account teams, that's what they have to worry about is, or those account teams. I have to worry about all of the account teams grooming and preparing my leadership bench for, you know, greater, greater upward mobility so that I can, again, at some point in time, feel confident stepping away from the day-to-day being in the trenches and, um, and, and that's real. And so I, I was in a moment of vulnerability. I, I shared that with them. And I'm glad that I did. Although I hesitated a little bit in the beginning, I'm glad that I did because I think it allows them to appreciate more the need for them to be on this trajectory of, 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 of problem solving on their own, um, leaning on each other where they can as thought partners so that it does free me up where appropriate to, to create and to grow the business and to make sure that we are thinking about you know, the future. So anyway, but yeah, entrepreneurship is terribly hard. It's not for the faint of heart. And um, yeah, it can be painful, but it also can be incredibly rewarding. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for opening up and for sharing that with us. I think that a lot of us, um, you know, it can be very lonely being an entrepreneur. It can be even lonelier being a CEO, right? So as a solopreneur, there are other solopreneurs that are out there doing, you know, Mm. kind of what you're doing and you can sort of, you know, you can have those moments where you kind of fall apart, right? With each other. Um, I think as a CEO, when you've got you know, and I'm a, I'm a CEO of my business, but it's not, I don't have W2 employees like you do. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's not that same. And there's a reason I don't, it's because it terrifies me. It scares the out of me to, yeah. to say, okay, well, I'm going to be responsible for whether other people's kids eat. Like I'm still trying mm-hmm. to make sure mine own can. Right. Yeah. And, um, and that's a scary thing, but I, where do you go for community as the leader of an organization with employees? I mean, you can't just, you know, you can't have a bad day, right? (laughs) So how do you do that? Where do you go? Well, so, so let me, let me um, debunk the myth of you can't have a bad day. I think that part of, um, you know, growing as a professional and even as um, an entrepreneur is to give ourselves grace 
to where we do give ourselves permission to have a bad day. And so it's a matter of being communicative. And um, the same way that sometimes my teammates may have a bad day, they understand that I may have a bad day, you know? And, and we navigate that um, with the level of respect and, and we extend grace and accept grace to each other where, where needed. Um, but I think that part of giving ourselves permission to, to have a bad day is also allowing ourselves to be vulnerable, to communicate that in whatever way it makes sense, you know? Even if it's just to say, you know what, I'm gonna step away from my desk for the next hour, I'm gonna take a walk, or I'm going to just kind of unplug for a moment. And that type of language, my team understands. <laughs> and and they and we all give each other that type of, of space and permission to do that because this work is hard first and foremost. And we have to make sure that we are at our best so that we can be effective at, at the work. So in terms of community, um, I, the community comes from my team. I draw energy from them because again, we all have that understanding of how to support each other. But then equally important, there are other entrepreneurs that I connect with on a frequent basis just to be thought partners. Some are in the industry, some are outside of the industry. And again, it's just as you mentioned, it can be really lonely. So knowing that there are others who are, are navigating the complexity of, of business growth and entrepreneurship um, that community really helps to ground me. Um, and so I think that's critical. Um, and, and, you know, and I also have individuals that are in my, my corner and my network that are really astute at, from a business coaching perspective. My husband is one of those. He's been an entrepreneur much, much longer than I have. And so I can bounce ideas off of him. I can say, hey, I need you to coach me through this. And, and I think that's important. So you know, the bottom line is that this work is hard as we've already articulated. And so it certainly behooves every business leader and entrepreneur to find that community and to not be afraid to see that as a safe space, to be vulnerable and transparent, to say, I need help. I, I need some best practice sharing. Let's kind of crowdsource around this. And that's okay. Thank you so much for sharing that and and for for challenging the notion that you can't have a bad day um a lot of times i feel like you know i know that we're also busy comparing our insides to everyone else's outsides uh but sometimes i think oh my gosh like do i even know what i'm doing <laughs> Oh, let me tell you, imposter syndrome is real. It shows up for me on a weekly basis. You know? Oh, goodness. I, I know. I put something on social media the other day and I really, it, it was encouraging and inspiring to a lot of people. So I appreciated them commenting in that regard, but really it was for me. And I'm paraphrasing here, but it was something along the lines of, I bet on myself because how can I expect others to bet on me? when I don't bet on myself. And it's not because I always feel completely confident walking into that situation, but it's because I feel like we have to be willing to trust ourselves, bet on ourselves, if we want others to also see us in that light. And that's an important aspect for entrepreneurs. Imposter syndrome is real. <laughs> I got to tell you, Dr. White, I would bet on you any day of the week. Oh, you're so kind, Amy. I appreciate that. Well, I've been watching you for a long time and you are, you are the real deal and, um, and an inspiration, whether you intend to be an inspiration for others or not, you truly are. 
You're so kind. Thank you. Thank you so much for saying that. And, and I feel the same about you, Amy. I'm so glad to have you on my network. It's so funny how we have all of these connection points and like BFFs from a, a social media perspective. <laughs> and sometimes we don't, we have never even met the individuals, but there's just always this like-mindedness with the content that's being shared. And even before you and I had a chance to have a formal introduction, I felt that way about you. So it's just such a gift and a treat for us to now actually be in communication with each other beyond social media. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. It, you know, it's funny because I have friends that I, I know so well through social media, particularly yes. Twitter, that I forget that I've not met them in real life. I know. And so then, you Isn't know, I'll see funny? them at a conference or I'll be somewhere and I'll like sit down next to them. I'm like, hey, how are you? And they're like, oh my gosh. And, you know, and then it's like, oh, that's right. We haven't actually met. Yes. So Yes, I know. I know. Isn't it great, though? That's one of the, the beautiful aspects of social media is that you can have this whole population of people that you fill this, this kindred spirit with and you've never even met them in person. Yeah. And someday when we can all travel safely again, we'll have to get together and, and have that community in person. Absolutely. At least for a little bit. Yeah. So Dr. Nico White, thank you so much for your time today, for your for sharing your expertise, for your vulnerability. Um, and for being on the show. I'm so grateful to have you. Well, I am so grateful that you, you thought of me, Amy, really. I don't take it lightly. You could have had anyone. And I know that you have some tremendous guests that come on your show. And so I'm just grateful to have been able to share this space with you. So thank you. Living Corporate is brought to you by The Break Room. Have you ever felt burnt out, depressed, or otherwise exhausted by being one of the onlys at work? You know what I'm talking about. Hosted by Black psychologists, psychiatrists, and PhDs, the Break Room is a live weekly web show in the Living Corporate Network that discusses mental health, wellness, and healing for black folks at work. Name another weekly show explicitly focused on mental health, wellness, and healing for black folks at work. I'll wait. This is why you got to check out The Break Room, airing every Thursday at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time on livingcorporate.tv. Okay, how much did you love Dr. Nico White? <laughs> what I loved about this interview was, I guess that I learned that even the rock stars among us, even the people that I think, you know, really have their stuff together and probably never have a moment of self-doubt, actually do. And they push through it and they get the job done anyway. And I got to tell you, that was probably um, exactly what I needed to hear today as I was doing this interview. If you enjoyed this episode, if it was as valuable to you as it was to me, don't forget to subscribe to Living Corporate and share us with your friends and colleagues. You can also meet your favorite guests and join the conversation on our Slack channel at c2bchat.com. That's the letter C, the number two, the letter B, chat.com. And you can really help us out by leaving us a six-star review wherever you get your podcasts. If you're new, you're probably thinking, well, Amy, there are only five stars. Okay, give us all those stars, but then go the next step by leaving just a couple of sentences in your own words, telling us what you liked about the show or what you enjoyed about our guest. Don't forget to visit living-corporate.com to learn more about our other podcasts, videos, web shows, and more. See It To Be It is brought to you in part by Lead At Any Level, a certified woman and LGBT-owned business dedicated to helping organizations build inclusive cultures, and diverse leadership pipelines. Lead at any level. Leaders can be anywhere and should be everywhere. Learn more at leadatanylevel.com. 
That's it for this episode of See It to Be It. This is Amy C. Wanninger, and I'll see you next week. Living Corporate is a podcast by Living Corporate LLC. Our logo was designed by David Dawkins. Our theme music was produced by Ken Brown. Additional music production by Antoine Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.